Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Change. One of the first things I noticed when I first discovered behavioral science was that when I gave talks about marketing and advertising, I got invited to marketing and advertising conferences. When I started talking about behavioral economics, I got invited to 10 Downing Street. Hi, I'm Julia Stainforth. And I'm Maddie Croucher. And every month we host this podcast and edit the Overhead blog. This month we've gone international and embraced the oh-so-modern magic of conference calling to connect our very own Rory Sutherland, who was in Deal, Kent, with consumer psychologist Adam Ferrier in Sydney, New South Wales. Adam is the founder and chief strategy officer of the agency Thinkabout, and just last month he served as a judge for the 2017 Nudge Awards, the winning case studies of which you can read on our blog. With degrees in commerce and clinical psychology, Adam started his career in maximum security prisons before making what he describes as the natural move to advertising. Their conversation kicks off with a question from Rory, asking if Adam could pinpoint a moment of conversion when he connected behavioral science with marketing services. I did have a, a moment where I suddenly realized that everybody, everything I was doing in marketing services was the same as um, everything I was doing in clinical psychology. And people used to ask me, um, is this the same what we're doing here is in psychology? And I would always say, no, it's not. And then, because the language is all different. And then suddenly it occurred to me um, that the principles are the same. It's just that marketing had no language for what it was doing. And so therefore it didn't feel the same. So all I had to do to um, get into marketing sciences um, was feel or reappropriate all the language that I'd learned in psychology and confidently apply it in a marketing setting. Um, and so, and then, you know, I realized that both marketing and psychology is about behavior change um, and then collapse those two disciplines together and that's where I had my kind of aha moment. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that um, you would have thought that uh, in marketing it would have been axiomatic and obvious that everything was about behavior change, but in a weird way it, it wasn't. And um, I, I always wonder if, if it was just a product of the way in which, to be honest, the way in which marketing was remunerated, which is for so long you were paid commission on the ads you ran. So therefore you made money by communicating things. And the business became all about communication, which is what you might call a sort of, um, you know, it's not the ultimate aim of the business. It's merely a sort of intermediate tool that you might use to change behavior. Um, I mean, there's, there's really no business value to anything uh, we do unless it changes what people do. And yet, strangely, all the language was around messaging. Yeah, I think, I think, there's, I think there's two things that drove it. I think, I think that's one. The second one was most people in marketing and uh, communications are quite divorced from the end product and they're not responsible for the end product, which is sales. So therefore, their job felt like it was done as soon as um, the message was out there in the marketplace. And I can remember when I was at Saatchi in Saatchi some years ago, I read uh, Robert Heath's kind of um, uh, manuscript on uh, how advertising works. I thought, gosh, this is interesting. It's basically saying um, that 
that low involvement processing is um, is how people kind of digest most advertising. So therefore, we don't have to even really get them to pay attention to the ad. And in a kind of a confused way of interpreting his thinking, I was thinking a bad ad and a good ad don't make that much difference. So why are we spending so much time trying to make a good ad when we could just make a bad ad? Now, that may or may not have been the right way of thinking. Um, and my, my hypothesis may not have been correct. But I was actually just trying to work out what actually would make people do something at the end of the communications. And those, it was amazing how rarely um, those kind of conversations happened. And I guess in some instances, um, rarely happened still. No, actually, I think um, um, one of the things that uh, sort of converted me a little bit was the old direct marketing like copywriters when I first started in the 80s, um, you know, people who, you know, I mean, technically they weren't operating in the 1930s, but their kind of uh, intellectual forebears were the, the Claude Hopkinses and so forth. Um, you know, uh, they always said, start with the coupon. And, of course, we were young copywriters, and we thought this is absolutely old-fashioned nonsense. You know, you start with a really bold headline. Why on earth would you start writing an ad by writing the coupon? And actually, of course, they were quite right, because if the end process doesn't work, it doesn't matter how good everything leading up to it might be. If you fall at the last fence, you might as well not bother at all. So the whole thing of optimizing a, a journey by starting with the end point always kind of interested me. And it always interested me that so much attention was paid to certain aspects of communication. But something like the choice architecture um, was ignored. You know, so, you know, uh, you know, an interesting one would be, it would probably make an enormous difference uh, if you ran, let's say, an off-the-page advertisement for the subscription to a magazine. It would make a very large difference whether you just offered a 12-month subscription or you offered a 12-month and a 6-month subscription. Okay. But a tiny amount of discussion would revolve around that, if at all. Um, and yeah. all the discussion would go with what the headline was. And actually, you could make any headline 100% more effective, perhaps. Well, at least you'd certainly test it by just by just offering some little choice on the coupon that there's a six-month option and a 12-month option. And it was a bit weird in that um, it always struck me as a bit odd that um, a lot of the things that had a huge effect on whether you made a sale or whether you didn't only received about 1% or 2% of the attention. Yeah, that's right, because it's out of the skill set as to what you do day to day, so therefore it doesn't matter. The analogy I often use is if you want um, if, if a teacher wanted the, uh, her students to get really good at handwriting she could um, no matter what she said if she was very very good at communicating the process of, of handwriting or whether she was very bad at communicating the process of how to do handwriting doesn't make much difference but if she could get, encourage the kids or get the kids to practice handwriting that would make a massive difference and so sometimes we're just having very, very nuanced conversations around things that don't actually matter that, that much. And, and that much creativity and 
effort can be better spent on working out a better solution to the problem, which I guess is a different way of talking about your couponing thing. So, I mean, I, I suppose it, it is fascinating. I mean, what's your theory as to um, uh, as to why what was a, a fairly promising relationship between the advertising industry and psychology? Um, uh, probably a bit too Freudian, to be absolutely honest, but that was psychology back in the 50s. Why that, why that promising relationship kind of completely disappeared? I mean, one theory is always that it was fear, that because they were attacked by people for brainwashing in books like The Hidden Persuaders, that um, the, yeah. the industry just panicked and thought, well, you know, we don't make money being effective. We make money producing communication. So um, uh, let's just talk about communication and pretend the other stuff isn't happening. But that's only one theory. Well, what are your thoughts? It always baffles me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I like your theory, and I've, I've read about it. I think I've even written about your theory on, on it. Um, but I think that the other thing is that psychology isn't that good, and it's not it's not that effective. And um, and you know, changing people's behaviour is very, 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 very complicated and very difficult. And a good psychologist friend of mine said, psychology just packages up what you already know. And, um, and, and, you know, and a science label and describes it. And so I think one of the reasons why psychology has been uh, slow on the uptake in advertising is because perhaps it just didn't add that much value. And because the, um, the, the people at the end of the day doing the communications were intuitive, uh, were instinctual, were sensitive people who really try to put themselves into the shoes of uh, their, their consumer and, and try to work out what made them tick. And they were good at it. And therefore, if you had a psychologist trying to add value to that process, they may not have been able to add value on the actual output. But whereas what they could have added value in, in doing is helping people understand why something will and will not work and, and helping, to, um, helping people to understand or shed a light on the processes that make these things work. And as we move into an age of um, where, trust me, I'm a creative, doesn't cut it anymore, and it's more about I need to understand. I have multiple stakeholders who need to know whether this will work or not or why you're so confident it will work, and there's a greater degree of accountability needed. Then we need a, a more sophisticated lexicon and a more sophisticated understanding of human behavior to help explain, maybe intuitively, what some brilliant... Um, bald creative at the end of a corridor just instinctively understands. No, I think I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, uh, you know, if you look back at you know the greats of advertising, um, actually, and fairness, I think Bernback was kind of an amateur psychologist to a great extent. I think that's what made him partly interesting. But if you look back at the um, the greats, what you realise their instinctive understanding was fantastic. I mean, I was recently talking about the number of great advertising end lines which contain a little bit of a yes but so you know reassuringly expensive naughty but nice good things come to those who wait when number two say so we try harder you either love it or you hate it etc okay now mm. robert cialdini that was his in a sense his most recent discovery that a little acknowledgement of weakness uh, at the right point actually aids persuasion um now, mm -hmm. you know, obviously, the creative people instinctively knew that. 
Um, uh, you know, I, I, I've now learned to savor those end lines that have a little bit of yes, but simply because I think we instinctively find arguments that acknowledge a trade-off are probably a little bit more convincing than arguments that suggest the decision is a slam dunk. You know, it's very good salesman's technique, apparently, just before you flog them the top of the range photocopier to say, it is a bit pricey, but you'll find it's worth every penny, or, or words to that effect. Um, and um, yes. there were a few cases where I think creative people were wrong, actually, which is um, they tended to have a, a strong benefit-driven uh, belief. Not, not, not that wasn't wrong in itself, but there were some, um, there were some uh, persuasive messages which creatives kind of rejected if they ever appeared in the proposition of a brief. For example, the fact that something was the number one selling something. Now, your creatives will always say, well, that's rubbish. Why should I care? That doesn't give me a benefit. And my, my response to that now will be, it isn't, you know, maybe it isn't the best proposition you can have. Maybe there's a better one. I acknowledge that. But there is a benefit to knowing something as the top-selling thing in me, which is a large degree of reassurance. You know, I, I think you... Mm. Uh, well, what is that great phrase? It, it's a joke. In Western Australia, 20 million flies can't be wrong or something. Isn't it? But there is social proof uh, in, uh, knowing, you know, in knowing that lots and lots of people have already done and are presumably happy with the thing we're proposing you do. Yeah. And that was, a, that was something which always get chucked out by creative people. And creative people would tend to chuck out anything which showed a range of things. And I was never quite sure about that either. Um, um, well, well you've got, we've got three, you've got three things there. Number one, displaying a sense of weakness, I think is absolutely right. I think anybody... Um, in the behaviour change industry knows that if you can display a little bit of weakness, um, show your human, show your flaws in some way, then people tend to lean in and, and are interested suddenly and, and don't feel threatened and, and, have, and display much less resistance. And so they become much more open and the relationship becomes much more porous. So wherever possible, weakness is, uh, is a virtue. And I think marketing um, has been a high-gloss industry for a long time. But if you look at politics and even in the world of entertainment, we know that weakness is, um, is massively exploited um, in terms of um, in, in politics, in terms of uh, bigger messaging and, um, and so on, and in terms of entertainment. You know, you've got lots and lots of stuff talking about uh, the foibles of human character and the dark side of, of, of how we behave and, uh, you know, themes around um, very, very dark things being incredibly popular and even the rise of things like reality TV and documentaries and so forth. All of these, kind of, all of these things uh, display weakness and, and, um, and therefore become popular because it allows people in. Marketing's been resistant to that because it's always been about kind of having to be a high-gloss, show-off-at-your-best, dramatise-the-benefit kind of scenario. Just as people would qu query white space in a press advertisement, they'd say, why am I spending my money to tell people about a downside? Yeah, that's right. And coming back to your earlier question about the role of psychology, that's why the role of psychology, I think, is becoming increasingly important as we become more accountable. And therefore, people need to understand how things work and why things actually work. You, 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 the second point you raised before around popularity and around uh, providing proof, if you take that into the um, 
social change um, area. We should be able to see, start to see a lot more communications just co congratulating huge portions of the population for not speeding, congratulating huge portions of the population for wearing their seatbelts, and starting to just create a sense of social norms about about the desired behaviour. I think that was a very, very shrewd thing, partly spotted, I think, by Richard Saylor, that an awful lot of, um, particularly, I think, uh, government advertising probably unintentionally normalised the behaviour it was seeking to prevent. Yeah, that's right. And Cialdini spoke a lot about it as well in terms of drinking on, on campus and so forth and saying, you know, drink, you know drinking, uh, underage drinking on this campus is a real problem and therefore just making it worse rather than focusing on the many people who do um, abide by uh, the law. And of course, you always get um, you always get that slight problem, which is quite often the deviant behaviour is highly visible, whereas the um, the boring behaviour is either unnoticed or un, un invisible, and that that distorts the norm of things generally anyway, doesn't it? Which is you know, if you think about it, you've got a university. You know, let's say you've got a you know a university college of five hundred people. The studious people are silent, whereas the twenty revellers are very very noisy. And it's very easy to create the impression that everybody else but you is at a party, uh, you know, with only a small number of noisy people. <laughs> and um, I, I, yeah, I always think right. that is interesting in that, you know, what, what's visible and what isn't visible uh, has an effect on all of us quite heavily. I mean, I, I always think it's a total yeah, con, I... by the way. Um, uh, and this might be because I'm a little bit right-wing, but I find it a total con the way the news media will provide television coverage for a demonstration in London which perhaps contains 3,000 people. I mean, basically, they're a group of people whose hobby is going on demonstrations, okay? Now, you know, the fact that 3,000 people in a city of 6 million are standing somewhere with some placards isn't really a newsworthy event, and in fact is deliberately contrived just to get news coverage. I mean, you know, on the same day, there are probably, I don't know, um, 80,000 people going to Blue Water, but that doesn't get any news coverage. No one calls that a pro-capitalist no. demonstration. <laughs> and so the fact that actually... But, but Rory, uh, but... News media are total suckers for like fifty people holding up banners. Don't get me wrong, by the way. If, you know, if it's the Iraq War demonstration, if it's a quarter of a million or two hundred thousand, that's news, okay? But genuinely, but, but Rory, you can create a news the, event were... with about fifty people. Yeah, and that's good. On that's, that's excellent. You should be very impressed with those 50 people because that's good marketing and they're using oh, no, no, the media is, well so it, yeah that, that's, that's excellent it should be it should be applauded protest yeah, away i think that the, the number of people that, you know the number of people involved can be so insignificant um don't get me wrong a protest of 30 people in a small market town is a big deal but um the fact that news effectively news media will cover anything at any size and regarded as significant always seems a bit weird to me. Yeah, but I think coming back to your thing around social proof, whether you're a, uh, a chocolate bar or a small group of demonstrators, if you can make yourself appear much more big and much more normal than you are, then then all power to you, no matter, no matter what your cause. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, uh, it's something in nature, isn't it? Rather like cats fluffing themselves up. 
making yourself look bigger is, uh, you know, one of the oldest strategies in the book, I guess. Yeah, that, that's right. And just, and just create a sense of um, normality for people to buy into. And I do want to see, I would love to see uh, government and social change agencies um, reinforcing um, the, 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 the social norms that do exist. And I think your point is very pertinent about the, um, the, the bad behaviour often stands out more. So what we need to do is out the good behaviour and glorify the good normal and make that feel even bigger and more aspirational and, and focus on that more. Or maybe encourage people, rather than the government thanking people for the good behavior, if you can encourage other people just to acknowledge it. Yeah. Uh, yep. you know, there's, I think in yeah. an earlier podcast I was talking um, to uh, Robert Trivers about the extraordinary importance in a world of kind of reciprocal altruism. When you pull in behind a row of parked cars to let the oncoming traffic pass, the huge difference in terms of whether you feel good or bad about your action is whether the guy in the oncoming car gives a little wave of acknowledgement. As you know, yeah, I, can imagine, I, think, I think that's a really, really good, really, really good point. And it's yeah. a tiny symbolic thing. It requires really, really small effort. I do notice, by the way, that you know, when the further you get from London, the wave percentage is much, much gets much, much higher. So down here, I'm on the East Kent coast. You know, it would be an act of absolute shame not to give a nod or wave or headlamp flash of acknowledgement if someone does you a favour. In London, I think the sort of greater level of anonymity can cause people to kind of drop out. Um, simply because well, you know, you know, your chance of encountering people again gets lower and lower. In Australia, travelling across the Nullarbor, uh, it, it takes uh, four days of continuous driving and sometimes you don't pass another car for a full day. Uh, there's, a, there's a thing called the Nullarbor wave. And the Nullarbor wave is when you're passing, if you do pass another car, if you've got your both hands on your steering wheel, you just slightly raise your index finger and then you drop it again. And that's the Australian way of, uh, of, of giving a wave and acknowledgement to somebody. That's fantastic, yeah. Any other questions on marketing psychology or marketing sciences? Let me think. Um, so um, your conversion came, and partly, as it was with me, it was the, the fact that when you had a decent vocabulary, it was much easier to explain and to uh, justify what you were doing. And I also think, I'm just interested, I suppose, one of the things I find very interesting is I think evolutionary psychology is really important as well as behavioral economics. And my argument is that behavioral economics provides the what, but evolutionary psychology provides the why. And I think in persuading people, it always helps to have a why as well as a what. Um, yes. I mean, yes, I, I totally agree. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure on the difference between the why and the what but most things come down to um, animal behavior and the fact that we aren't just animals and we uh, have evolved um, in much the same way as uh, as our kind of um, uh, chimpanzee cousins and we can studying them we were much less different uh, than we would like to think um, I run a marketing sciences conference called Marketing Sciences Ideas Exchange, which you've been the keynote speaker uh, in previous years. And this year we've got a, we've got a fantastic speaker called uh, Andrew O'Keefe. He looks at um, 
evolutionary psychology and does a lot of work with Jane Goodall, who, um, who's obviously studied, um, uh, spent her life studying primates. And the two of them work together and looking at the similarities of um, human and animal behaviour. And uh, and so so they're going to be uh, talking to them to here to explore this very topic. I'm very interested. I don't know if you've read this. There's a new book by I think it's Dan Sperber and somebody else, essentially saying that reason didn't involve didn't evolve to help us make decisions. It evolved for social reasons to help us uh, win and debate arguments within groups. Yeah. Somebody once said to me that we're rationalizing beings, not rational beings. And I, and I get that. And and I, and I think you're right. We act on instinct and we spend a lot more time rationalizing than we do acting rationally. Um, and I, I had the, uh, the pleasure of working in uh, the New South Wales Corrective Services Department for uh, three years and then private practice in forensic psychology before getting into marketing. And that, was, that, that became very, very clear to me how good we are at rationalising instinctive behaviour, and what I what I noticed when I worked in the prison system with the uh, with the people who were convicted of doing very serious crimes was that nobody wants to be seen, nobody wants to see themselves as a monster, nobody wants to see themselves as a bad person, nobody wants to see themselves as stupid, um, and so we spend a lot of our time uh, rationalising our behaviour to see ourselves in the best possible light, and if you've just murdered somebody or just committed some kind of horrific crime that's really harming people you have to be very very good at rationalizing that and then and and kidding yourself and then you're you then when you talk to other people about justifying your behavior it becomes very very clear to a young psychologist just how um good we are at at, uh, deceiving our own motivations and, and and making them feel rational when in fact um they're far from that and having that experience has just made this very, very clear to me um, how much we all do it um, every day. What, what distinguishes people who do bad things from people who don't may in part be their capacity for sort of self-deception. Well, once you've or, done or the bad thing, there's a whole lot of antecedents. Yeah, it's more, I think it is more just circumstance. So uh, and I think that the issue is once you've done the bad thing, then you spend your, the rest of your life rationalising the bad thing to yourself. And let, let's take, you know, if that, if that happens at that level, let's say you've committed a murder and you, you, you murdered a loved one, you'll rationalise that to yourself until you start to believe it. Let's say you're a drug treat and you, um, you, you win the Tour de France seven times in a row, but you've done it by taking drugs. You spend a lot of time rationalising those decisions to yourself too, to, to see yourself in the best possible light. And then when you go on Oprah Winfrey, you come across as, uh, you know, as, as somebody who's, who really believes in what they're saying because they do. But, you know, take that even further along to, to our own behaviours that we do every day or to justify having um, an extra drink or, you know, whatever it is that we know that we shouldn't be doing. Uh, it, you know, we're very, very, very good at deluding ourselves and... and um, and rationalising behaviour that we know we shouldn't be doing, or or that comes instinctually. Certainly, I, I don't know if you've read the, the Trevor's book on deceit and self-deception, but his argument is that... Uh, no, I haven't, uh, but I should. It, it's evolutionally advantageous for us to deceive ourselves, uh, the more convincingly to deceive other people. So that a degree of delusion is kind of built in, that... Um, uh, 
if you want to convince other people of, of, of something, the most effective way of doing it is to effectively believe it yourself. And um, it, oh my uh, God. Uh, it makes perfect sense. But I think, you know, there's an unfortunate thing, but very important thing, which is, of course, evolution doesn't give a shit about accuracy. It cares about reproductive and, and, and survival fitness. The better you are at deluding yourself, uh, the more successful you'll the more, be, the and more therefore the more, the more you yeah. yeah, yeah. And so therefore, and then we meet people like, um, obviously, nobody wants me to say Donald Trump, but you know, those things come along. Yeah, no, I mean, he's undoubtedly, uh, he's not lacking in self-belief. I think you can confidently say that. And I think, uh, <laughs> I, I think it's, it's a very interesting thing that, of course, it isn't in our evolutionary interests. I think, they, I think, psychophysics is an interesting part of behavioural science in that it isn't in our interest to perceive the world objectively. You know, it's more important than you detect contrast that you, than you uh, can attribute absolute values to things, for instance. Um, and I think, I think that's a really important factor. I also think it's important, I, I think the most important distinction, I think, in behavioural science, which I very much, although, although the whole um, field started off accepting the economic definition of rationality and use behavioral science to point out where individual humans, in particular consumers, might be irrational. I've gone pretty much 180 on that. I, I think that the uh, economic definition of uh, rationality is ridiculous, unrealistic, and something we could never have evolved to pursue. And what I discover more and more is that when people do things that even we ourselves regard as irrational behaviors, once you understand what we're instinctively and unconsciously trying to do, it isn't actually irrational. It's, it's highly intelligent. So, you know, the examples I give is once you understand that someone's satisfying rather than maximizing, well, what's a rational behavior when you're trying to avoid catastrophe rather than seek perfection is a very, very different thing. So you might just have a handy heuristic rule which, if you follow that rule, doesn't lead to disaster. Now, that, that heuristic rule may appear to be bonkers on the surface. I, I would argue that, by the way, brand preference falls under this. I think we pay a premium for brands mostly because we think that a brand reputation is a reliable guarantee of non-crapness. I don't think we go in there and pay $150 extra for the Samsung TV because we think it's proportionately better. I think we pay that premium uh, to minimize a small chance of catastrophic regret. Um, and I think... <laughs> And, and so I've, I've kind of gone quite Gigerensian on this. I've, I've actually thought that uh, it's, a, it's a monstrous cheat that economics has been able to develop theories, and then when the theories don't match up to behavioral reality, to blame not the theory but the person. I, I think they use yeah. the term rational is ridiculous. I, I, kind of, I, can't, I think I agree. I'm not sure. I get confused in terms of whether I think people are acting rationally or not. It just depends on how they justify the decision. And I think it's kind of, I think it's irrelevant. I think what's coming to the fore in a lot of this is that people make bad decisions. And when I say bad decisions, they make decisions that don't make them um, happy or don't don't fully satisfy their needs or leave them with an expectation of, of that, that's, that's unmet. And I think 
um, the better the humans can um, understand their own drivers for the decisions that they're making, then the better decisions they make, especially in the consumption sense, and then uh, the happier and or more satisfied they will be. And I think the onus is on people to understand things like hyperbolic discounting and and all these kind of fancy terms for you know for simple things like you've got to think about the long and the short term benefits of of the decisions that you're making and try to weigh those up equally. I, I agree with the popularisation. It was interesting when I met Daniel Kahneman. He said. Um, his one hope for the discipline was that it would change the nature of gossip. In other words, that these terms would become widely known and people would, you know, people would say, I think when they retired to Spain, they were suffering from effect forecasting or whatever. Uh, you know, the idea that the weather will have a continuing and enduring effect on your happiness, which may be true for a two-week holiday, but isn't necessarily true for a, a 10-year retirement. You know, I find that kind of discussion, I, I agree with him there, that I think that if people just, um, uh, if people develop the habit of just understanding a little bit of the terminology and just chatting around it. Um, uh, that might be one of the most valuable things to emerge. I think it's also important that um, one of the greatest problems, I think, in business and in government is that, um, bear in mind that when you're making a decision within an inst institutional setting, the greatest motivation isn't really to make a good decision. It's to minimize the risk of blame no. should things go wrong. And one of the problems yes. I've noticed, and it's, it's absolutely endemic, is that in a government setting or in a business setting, if you make decisions as though economics were true, you'll never get into any trouble. Because economics is, you know, mm -hmm. the standard default assumption for human motivation. It's kind of, you know, it, 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 it's, 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 to be honest, it's, 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 it's modern version of alchemy. It's mostly bollocks, but because it's considered you know, the norm of decision-making conversation, you know, it dominates the policy-making compass to an extraordinary extent, where if you just say, yes. we want people to do X rather than Y, therefore we will bribe them to do X and fine them for doing Y, and you walk away, it doesn't matter how unsuccessful the implementation of that policy proves, you'll never get blamed for it because it looks like a rational way to intervene. Now, there are two problems with it. One, it might be completely wrong and counterproductive. And two, even if it isn't, it's a hugely unimaginative and creatively limiting approach to solving a problem. And so I, I, I think that's, in, in one of the cases, I think, with behavioral science, what, we're, what we've got to do is not so much uh, tweak uh, human behavior. We've got to tweak institutional assumptions about human behavior. Yeah, I think that's a... I think that's a and we've got to have a um, a different type of conversation that's more around that's a more informed conversation that's not made up of um, just just utter utter bullshit. Yeah. Which um, there's a lot of there's a lot of like I mean I'm, there's a process going on in my life at the moment and there is so much data and so much information and and so much of it is completely meaningless to uh, the actual task at hand. And that's that's obviously not a not a rare um, position to be in for all of us, but it's but it's trying to I guess um, get a new benchmark or a, or a new framework that I think um, behavioural economics is is just a, just a very first step towards trying to help us um, do that a little bit.
I think there's also a terrifying thing, which is once you understand that instinctive blame avoidance within companies and, and particularly within the you know certain public sector organisations as well, uh, and of course within medicine, we should you know one of the most important areas where where it has a distorting effect. Um, what you what I think you realise is that an extra I mean it terrifies me, uh, you know, when you walk around any modern organization, including our own, I'll be absolutely candid, the ratio of activity that's effectively dedicated towards justifying shit as distinct from activity <laughs> which is generating some sort of economic value through innovation or, or, or change. And the extraordinary amount of effort now that's put into work, which is really off-covering, masquerading as rigor, uh, terrifies me. What I find very interesting about um, um, about the spread and the availability of data points is that data points can be used to justify every single argument. And, and so every argument can be made to sound very, very robust. So therefore, the whole um, the whole meaning and point of data and evidence becomes meaningless when any argument can be rationalised and justified uh, to a very very solid degree. Yeah, well, of course, so it makes me, it very the, very the more, the more data we have, the more cherry picking potential we have. So the more potential we have that's to right. ignore data that's inconvenient. Yes. So it can end up. That's you know, right. And the more data you can get. To so big data can essentially be to just big bullshit. Yeah, can. Um, so what's the what's the solution to that? How do you make very good decisions in in that in that world in data rich environments? And how do you know you're making the right one? Well, it's a very interesting question. I mean, one of the things would be that um, we, you know I I, I I genuinely believe in uh, you know the vast majority of data you look at, and that may just be our confirmation bias, uh, you know, more or less confirms what we assumed already. When you get counterintuitive findings, that's interesting and significant, I think. Something that at least may help revise your opinion. I think there's a company in the United States that's a slightly pronounced tendency in the US when people are given a choice of two forms of surgery, uh, that they go with the more expensive kind. Uh, there's, a particular, there's a particular case, I think, where you have a particular kind of back pain, and there are two ways of treating it. One is invasive and involves surgery. The other involves, effectively, uh, you know, several months' treatment with anti-inflammatory and pain-killing drugs, after which time the problem sorts itself out. And people disproportionately went for the invasive surgery option. Um, and then they tried. They made two absolutely scientifically approved. I think it was ten-minute films, each describing the upside and downside of the two courses of action. And after people had watched the films, the ratio of choice completely flipped. And the um, uh, you know, I, I, it's slightly different I think, in the U.S. to the U.K. Because I think in the U.S. there's possibly always suspicion that your insurance company is trying to fob, fob you off for the cheaper option. So you may tend to go for the more expensive option, which your doctor may be trying to sell you as well. But actually giving people 10 minutes on each with upside and downside um, uh, very, very dramatically changed the, uh, the pattern of choice. Yeah. 
I think, uh, yeah, well, that, that, that sounds interesting. I think as well, uh, uh, just a slightly related thing to that, which I find incredibly interesting, is um, the whole concept of um, price placebos. And the more you pay, the better it gets. And the more emotive the decision, the the more impact that particular uh, thing has. And, you know, getting back to, just coming circling back to your counterintuitive um, uh, findings, um, I think, you know, desire increases as price increases. But if you try to tell somebody that, um, who is a, a hard-nosed retailer, who sees every day, every time they lower the price of something, that sales increase, you, you end up having a, a kind of a clash of civilizations, if you like. It's very interesting, that because, again, you'll never get into trouble for dropping the price, even if it has the effect of reducing demand, because you've behaved in a way that's commensurate with economic theory, mm -hmm. you see. And it always strikes me as interesting. You know, if you have a product that isn't selling, uh, in a perfect world, before you drop the price, you test putting the price up. Because some of the time, that works quite well. I mean, it's a huge problem. It, I mean, you can see it as becoming a huge problem in smartphone pricing, by the way, which is I suspect you could produce a really good Android smartphone uh, at high volume for maybe, I mean, particularly, I think the iPhone is 45% profit. Is that right? Something like that. Okay. So you could, you could produce a pretty good and profitable, really top-of-the-range Android smartphone um, at, a, at a much, much lower price than the iPhone. But what you can see in all the manufacturers is they have to have a flagship that's priced at iPhone level because if you're 300 bucks cheaper, uh, everybody assumes it's not as good. And you almost have to set that price as a kind of confidence marker. And again, there are things going on with pricing which have nothing to do with the standard economic idea of you know, utility and cost. They're all to do with how you how you position something and how you present it. I mean, undoubtedly, you know, one of the problems of getting wealthier is that your the the amount you want to spend on lots of things just seems to grow with your wealth. So you know, I'm not, you know, I was interested. You know, actually, you know, pretty good low cost hotels are pretty damn good nowadays. They used to the cheap cheap hotels in Britain were flaming awful when I was a child. But I mean, a travel lodge or a Premier Inn or a Holiday Inn Express, it's going to be a pretty damn good hotel. As people get richer, the urge to go and stay at something fancier goes up and up and up. Now, you can't really claim they're getting any, any form of utility commensurate with the extra money they're spending. But nonetheless, we kind of want to spend, you know, if something's a special occasion, we want to spend an amount of money. Now, you know, I see, I see that as both an interesting reflection on human nature. I also do see it, advertising man though I am, as potentially problematic because, you know, we can get richer and richer as a society. I joked to an Indian friend that there's no point in India becoming wealthy uh, because 90% of the economic gains will just be spent on ever more elaborate weddings. And he said, that's not, that's so true, it's not even funny. But, you know, there are certain things where, you know, symbolic expenditure is so ingrained in us that, you know, we could all be 10 times richer and end up spending that extra money in really stupid ways. And that does bother me a bit. Yeah, I think I think just in terms of economic argument, I think lots of uh, lots of businesses uh, still play uh, a volume game as opposed to trying to create value. And it's very hard to see how much money 
you're leaving on the table because you're not afraid to um, to pull the value lever as opposed to pull the volume lever. The belief that cost leadership is a great business strategy doesn't appear to be borne out in experience. I mean, it's one of the most amazing things if you think about it, which economists should have noticed long before they noticed anything else, was that the, the brand leader is almost never the cheapest brand. Yeah. Yeah, true. Um, and somebody once said to me, it's always much easier to raise the price on something than it is to lower the price. As soon as you lower the price on something, uh, you basically... It's like introducing a new. It's like introducing a new character in a sitcom. It only goes downhill from there. Of course. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that's a wonderful way to end. Huge thanks to Adam and Roy for dialing in from their respective corners of the globe for this conversation. I particularly liked how they challenged the concept of what makes an ad good. I think they were probably quite right suggesting a good ad may very well be creatively uninspiring. But if you can show that it did in fact result in more sales, that is, it changed customer behavior, it must be considered a good ad. If you want to hear more from Adam, you can check out his book, The Advertising Effect, How to Change Behavior, and even play his psychological board game, The Analyst, which we should definitely get a copy of for this office. Totally. You can also follow Adam on Twitter, at Adam Ferrier, and follow us at Ogilvy Change. If you're interested in discovering some great examples of behavioral science in action from the winners of this year's Nudge Awards, you can check out our blog, o-behave.tumblr.com. And don't forget, you can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash OglebyChange. And finally, we want to extend thanks to our sponsor, SoundLounge, enabling advertisers to use music in more powerful ways. Special thanks to Ruth Simmons for introducing us to the world of sound branding, and Julian Goodkind for managing the music origination and production for this show. Thanks for listening.